Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Dave Baxter, Deputy Personal Finance Editor of Investors Chronicle, and UK Small and Mid-Caps Manager Rosemary Banyard, who since March has been running VT Downing Unique Opportunities Fund. The Investors Chronicle Portfolio Clinic is a feature which involves readers sending in their financial and investment details for financial experts to comment on. But we can't run this unless you take part. So what better way to while away the hours in lockdown than to feature in the Portfolio Clinic and maybe get on top of your personal finances? If you want to take part, you can find the form you need to fill in on the Portfolio Clinic section of a website or email portfolio.clinic at ft.com or me, leonora.walters at ft.com. One of the many consequences of the coronavirus outbreak has been UK companies slashing their dividends, meaning that investors who rely on these for income could see a reduction. This isn't just a problem for individual investors like you and me, but also UK equity income funds. Now, Dave, you've been looking at this. Does it mean that all UK equity income funds are a no-go area now if you need income? Hi, Leonora. As we've seen, the UK has been particularly hard hit in terms of this nightmare scenario for dividends. This week, the banks axed their dividends and uh, some other major income sources in the market, such as oil and gas companies, are under big pressure. This is a problem for open-ended UK equity income funds because rules state that they're only allowed to pay the income that they receive. So if you use them, you're likely to get a much lower payout this year. That said, this is a time when the mechanics of investment trusts really stand out. Investment trusts are allowed to build up revenue reserves so that in times like these when they may struggle to get natural income, they can use that to top up their payments. They can also pay income from capital if they need to. Okay, so do investment trusts then provide a guaranteed steady income stream? (laughs) So sadly, as always, there are no guarantees. Many of uh, the income investment trusts will look well-placed to withstand the current environment. But there are some investment trusts that don't really have much in the way of capital reserves. Similarly, some of them may uh, pay their income from capital. That's a bit risky because um, in times like this, when the whole market is falling, if you do that, you're basically going to really badly damage your returns. So there are definitely some risks to be aware of as well. Okay, so um, what do you need to check before investing in an investment trust to make sure that it's in a good position to pay dividends? One really useful metric is just looking at their revenue reserves and what length of time these reserves could basically cover in terms of their last dividend payment. In the UK equity income space, a lot of the trusts have fairly decent amounts of reserves that can cover their dividends for months or even years or more. So that's quite good and always good to be aware of. But also, it's just good to look at the portfolio, take a look at how exposed these trusts are to the big income payers in the UK market and how diversified they are. So, you know, can they perhaps withstand this situation a bit better than some other trusts? Which UK equity income trusts are well positioned to do this? 
I'll give you one example. One really highly rated name is the City of London Investment Trust. They're quite known in this space because they have increased their dividend for 53 consecutive years now. That's good because that tells you uh, two things. One, they've managed to weather lots of crises in the past and still managed to increase their dividend each year. But also it tells you that they are really focused on keeping that going. Um, and that means they will likely try as hard as they can to keep doing so in the current situation. Um, this week, they've actually announced as much. Um, they've said they want to keep growing their dividends um, despite the current circumstances. The trust also has an attractive yield. Uh, recently, it stood at about 6%. And interestingly, they are exposed to some of the big dividend payers in the markets, but they're perhaps a bit more diversified away from them than some of the other trusts. We've been talking about problems of UK equity income, but the point is there's a whole world out there. You can invest in overseas equity income. So, yep. I mean, how safe is this? Yeah, again, there are risks um, and the dividend cuts that we're seeing in the UK, that's not just restricted to the UK, that's all around the world, given what's going on. So again, it's worth looking at investment trusts because um, plenty of global investment trusts can again build up and use these revenue reserves. So again, you need to look at what the reserves are, um, how much of the dividend they might cover. But similarly, you need to check the asset allocation, the investment strategy, how that fits with your views. And a major difference might actually be uh, with the yield. Because um, the UK market tends to be uh, very high yielding. That's not always the case in other parts of the world. So some of these global income investment trusts may have, for example, increased their dividend for a long time. But it may actually be quite a small yield, um, which won't be attractive if you need to live off the income. What would be a good way to tap into overseas equity income? One name that stands out is Murray International Trust. They, in recent years, have moved away from the UK because there have been some dividend cuts in recent times. They focus more on, for example, companies with strong balance sheets in Asia and emerging markets. This trust has quite an attractive yield. Um, it recently came to around 6% and its reserves cover more than a year of dividend payments. Okay, thank you, Dave. And see this week's big theme in the fun section of the magazine of a website for all his equity income investment trust suggestions. In times of economic uncertainty, such as at present, smaller companies are typically more vulnerable than larger ones. On top of this, the UK is set to leave the European Union at the end of the year, which could place an added burden on UK smaller companies, which are typically domestic facing. So, Rosemary, why did you launch a fund focused on this area of the market under such circumstances last month? <laughs> well, it's a good question, Leonora. So, the fund launch took some months in the preparing. Uh, you can't just sort of pop up and launch funds. You've got to obviously go through a lot of regulation, etc. In some sense, the fund was going to launch when it launched. I felt a lot happier starting a fund in mid-March than um, looking back into, say, January, because obviously a lot of share prices have come down by 30, 40, 50 percent. So for a long-term investor, this is actually a great time to start investing. One of the many risks of smaller companies is liquidity, that is, difficulty in buying and selling their shares. What are you doing to mitigate this risk and how fast could you liquidate your holdings to meet investor redemptions if necessary? 
Okay. Well, the fund has only just started. It's been going two weeks. So honestly, talking about redemptions is probably a bit premature. (laughs) Um, But the fund can invest in uh, market capitalizations from 150 million up to 10 billion. So that's everything in the UK except what I would call micro caps and mega caps. So there'll be quite a lot of holdings in this fund that are mid caps and some holdings that are in the bottom end of the FTSE 100 index. And uh, when you when you are preparing to launch a fund, you have to submit a model portfolio. And in the model portfolio, about 40% of the holdings show as being in either mid cap or to a lesser extent in the FTSE 100. You aim for the fund to eventually hold between 25 and 40 companies. And this is actually quite concentrated for a fund portfolio, especially a smaller company's fund portfolio. So, I mean, doesn't this add concentration risks to the fund, you know, which is obviously already focused on, I suppose, a risky uh, area of the market? Well, for people who are worried about uh, concentration risk, then, you know, as Warren Buffett would tell you, you you know, you should go and invest in a in a tracker and have a bit of everything. For myself, I've been running um, a concentrated portfolio of between 25 and 40 um, holdings in my previous um, role. So I'm kind of used to this. And I think that um, if you're going to be an active manager, people generally want you to show conviction. This is a conviction portfolio, but people should understand that it's in no way hugging any sort of index and the performance in any one month or year could diverge quite a lot from any index that they choose to compare it with. Now, you mentioned you've only been going two weeks. So how much of the fund's assets are invested so far? When do you expect to be fully invested? And in view of current market conditions, will you maintain an allocation to cash? Uh, yeah, so um, two, two, two and a half weeks in, I'm getting on towards 50% invested. I have under the rules six months to get to 80% invested. So um, I can go fairly slowly from here up towards the 80% mark. And uh, my sort of style is to um, have uh, companies that I have my eye on Um, that I'd like to invest in. Uh, And in some cases, I might be waiting for a better opportunity. Um, There's no rush. So certainly within six months, I'd expect to be at least 80% invested. I think it will probably be sooner than that, actually. On the cash front, I've always tended to run um, my portfolios with a certain amount of cash, say 5 to 10%. And that's because um, occasionally something will happen, stuff happens to businesses, and you can suddenly find that a business that you've wanted to invest in for years suddenly presents itself at an attractive valuation, and you you want the cash to be able to, to react to that straight away. With this recently launched fund, uh, to give it its name, VT Downing Unique Opportunities, um, you target companies that you think can achieve above average returns on capital based on a sustainable competitive advantage. How do you identify such companies? I mean, what attributes um, might suggest that they could achieve this? Yeah, well, it's two sides of the same coin. I would say that if a company is achieving 
above average returns on capital. And, and I prefer to look at returns on equity because I'm an equity investor. Uh, but if they're, if they're achieving above average returns, particularly over several years, um, normally that's a hint that they have a sustainable advantage or two in the business. And then you can look at it and try and work out what they are. Or, um, you know, if, if, for example, the company's been going through a period of change and getting rid of some poor performing businesses, it might be that it's not yet evident in the numbers, but you can go around it the other way and say, well, I can see that this company's got these advantages. So I think it will eventually get to above average returns. The kind of things that I look for are things like high switching costs. So it's a customer thinks very hard before they switch to another supplier because it's a real hassle. Network economics. So if you've got a network and you're the, the dominant network in an industry, it's very hard for someone else to gain traction because the more products or users you get, um, the more valuable your network is compared with somebody else's. Or it could be a cost advantage, or it could be something like a patent or regulatory protection. Those are the kinds of things I'm looking for. Okay. Now, um, uh, the fund's quite new, but your investment process isn't. You've been developing it over 25 years. What particular events or circumstances over this period have particularly influenced it? I'd like to think that one's always... Uh, refining an investment process because um, hopefully I'm always learning. But there was one particular event back in 2008 when I was about halfway through my time at Schroeder's where actually I read a book review that was a very, it was a very small article put out by a broker and it was reviewing a book that was published then uh, called The Little Book That Builds Wealth by a, a man called Pat Dorsey, who um, was the head of research at Morningstar in America. And it was this book that started talking about what makes a franchise, what um, sorts of things can create an economic moat to protect a business. And he, he wrote a whole book about it. And I, did, I didn't actually read the book for many years, I, but I read this review and it really struck a chord and I would say that it was from that time that I started to focus more and more on these types of businesses. Yeah, so that's the, that was the particular influence. You spent a big chunk of your career at Shoulders, which I think a lot of people uh, associate you with. But your last position was actually at Sanford Deland Asset Management. And they've got a particular emphasis on investing in the style of renowned US investor Warren Buffett. So to what extent have you incorporated this style of investing into your current approach? Uh, well, you're absolutely right that um, uh, there's a focus from my old firm on, on Buffett. And, and actually, one thing I did do there was to go to Omaha to the annual shareholder meeting. Um, and uh, there are a lot of things that go on around that particular uh, six-hour shareholder meeting, lots of lots of other meetings and presentations and things. So I, I did I very much enjoy um, getting into the um, uh, Buffett Munger um, uh, business perspective investing type of scene. So I think it it has influenced me. I I read widely now about investment. 
I've read books by um, lots of people who are associated with, if I could call it, that movement. So I think I always feel I'm learning and incorporating aspects of that style. Uh, Particular things might be being uh, very much more aware that as a share price goes down, if you really like the business, uh, that represents a better and better opportunity to invest in it, which is quite helpful at the moment. (laughs) I've always been long term. But I think it encourages you, you very much to be uh, long term. And I, I, I would encourage you know anyone who listens to this to call down some of the shareholder letters that Buffett has um, written over the last 40 years. They're all up on their web, the Berkshire Hathaway website. Some of the sort of details about the companies are American and specific, but there's always great words of wisdom in every letter. Yeah, they're a great read. How does the way you run your current fund uh, differ to the way in which you run funds at Sanford, Deland and Schroeder's? I suppose that what I'm thinking is, in a way, they're quite different companies. Schroeder's is a massive international asset management group. Downing is a boutique. Sanford, Deland was a boutique, but with a particular emphasis on Buffett. So they're all quite different, really, aren't they? Yeah. So I think the big difference was moving from Schroeder's into a smaller firm, so that the big difference for me there is that instead of running lots of different mandates with lots of different benchmarks and having across a lot of mandates an awful lot of individual holdings in total, I've now moved into um, you know a couple of places where there's, as you say, smaller firms where you you can afford to have you know just one fund, very focused and and far fewer investments to. To monitor, so that, I think that's the big difference. The big difference is between Schroders with lots of lots of mandates, lots of holdings, and since Schroders, um, more focused. Okay. Now, um, have you changed your investment process in any way in response to the coronavirus outbreaks and the uh, effect it's having on markets? Uh, I wouldn't say I've changed my process. The process, uh, I I think I've already explained the kinds of businesses I'm looking to invest in, and that hasn't changed in any way. And um, the other element of the process is then to build um, um, models um, with a 10-year history, lots of ratio analysis, and then um, DCF-based valuation. I suppose the thing that's... um, uh, a little tougher right now is that in the uh, evaluation method, I try and forecast three years ahead specifically, and then a fade rate on the cash flow. And um, in the present environment, the, the next 12 months, the forecasts are probably um, quite difficult to make <laughs> in some companies. Mm. Um, but I do try. So I'll try and tweak the model for a, you know, a really bad year. And then, and then a recovery, uh, possibly taking a year or two to get back to where it might have been, um, and and look at see what that does to the valuation. And um, oftentimes you'll find that the valuation, you know, has come down a lot, and uh, one bad year isn't going to sort of uh, change the investment thesis forever, actually. Now, the fund's largest sector exposures at the end of March were technology and healthcare, which might actually experience an increase in demand due to coronavirus. One of the fund's largest holdings is Tristel, 
a manufacturer of infection prevention and contamination control products. So did the coronavirus outbreak influence your decisions to add this holding and have these sector allocations? Uh, no, it didn't. Um, in fact, um, <laughs> we, did, we prepared um, you know, video uh, for the Downing website uh, in which I talked about Tristel, and, th- and that video was prepared before this virus outbreak, um, you know, really took hold. So I can on- I can honestly say, you know, I would have bought the I would have bought the uh, into the investment anyway. Um, uh, and I've been um, for some year, many years actually, very comfortable investing in software companies because um, they often have um, very high margins. Um, and they typically, if they dominate a, a particular vertical uh, in an industry, it's quite a um, it's, it's a sort of business where switching to another provider is is often very hard. People tend to be very customers tend to be very sticky. So software companies very much fit my assessment of the kind of business to invest in. So I, I can't honestly say that the the, the companies that I've invested in. Uh, you know, are any different from the ones I planned to. Um, but I would say that I've started, you know, I've got, I've got my model list. And um, what I've started with is I looked and thought, right, I'm going to invest in companies with, with cash and, and preferably with enough cash to actually survive for nine months or even 12 months of a real downturn. Um, and so that's been the specific, um, if you like, um, subset that I've invested in of my potential um, company investments at the beginning. Okay. Now, you said you were going to invest in Tristel anyway. So, coronavirus aside, what do you particularly like about Tristel? Okay. Well, um, in terms of the competitive advantages or what uh, Warren Buffett first termed a moat around it, um, Tristel's got two. It makes uh, a disinfectant for um, outpatient equipment and hospital inpatient surfaces, such as cupboards, beds, etc. And that um, disinfectant is chlorine dioxide. And chlorine dioxide needs to be mixed from two uh, base substances just before it's used. So the first competitive advantage that Tristel has, it has patents on a pump that uh, mixes these two substances and then enables them to be sort of delivered. So it's got a patent portfolio on the delivery system. But the other thing it's got is a lot of equipment manufacturers, this is more relevant to the outpatients, that say that if you don't use the Tristel product, that your warranty on their equipment is invalidated. So they've managed to get the, the producers of the equipment to you know, basically recommend them as the cleaning product of choice. So I like I like those two things. And although Tristel is, I think, trading very well at the moment, the, a recent announcement says they've seen a, a pickup in demand, which, you know, is hardly surprising. <laughs> but the, 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 the main, the main um, upside is that they are in the process of um, applying for approval to launch their products in the United States, which is obviously a huge market. They need FDA approval. It, it, it may well be a year or two away, um, but the U.S. market doesn't currently have a chlorine dioxide-based um, disinfectant product. 
Okay, now you mentioned um, software companies as well. Have you added any to the portfolio yet? And can you give any examples? I have added some software companies to uh, the portfolio. I could give you an example, which is actually a FTSE 100 um, example, which is Aviva with an E in the middle. Not to be confused with the insurance company. I've 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 owned it for many years, both at Schroders and and Land. Talking about the competitive advantages of it, it is one of three leading producers in the world of software for both designing and then maintaining plant. And this plant could be an oil refinery, a chemical plant, a food or a pharmaceutical plant, any kind of plant that you can imagine. Um, and it's a visualization 3D design software. And obviously you can understand that once you've used it to design a plant, you can then use the same software to um, uh, monitor and manage the maintenance as well. Um, it's a company that was um, a majority stake was bought in it by Schneider, uh, I think three years ago, possibly two years ago. And it's, of course, possible that at some point they will buy in the minority. Um, but um, meantime, it's a company with, you know, very, very high switching costs. If you are, you know, if you're a operator of a plant, you, you might only have them as your supplier, or you might possibly have two suppliers in the world across your group. So it's, so it's it's quite a sticky uh, business. Okay. Now um, you've um, uh, obviously picked these companies because they've got some really good attributes. But to what extent do you consider the sector a potential investment is in and the economic environment when choosing potential holdings? I, I don't specially. I'm, I'm very much what bottom-up investor I'm, you know I've got my model model on an individual company and then you know I'm, I'm very you know keen to invest in particular company uh, and I do believe in having a spread of of sectors um, for diversification reasons I suppose the only thing at the moment is just being a little careful about the timing of investing in more consumer-facing businesses in a period of lockdown. So, I might uh, take a, you know, small position and then, um, you, you know, probably expect to average down over <laughs> over a period of weeks. Mm. So, are there any areas or types of companies that you resolutely avoid investing in? Uh, yes. Um, so, I don't invest in oil exploration and production or mining because the success of these businesses is usually very dependent on the price of the mineral and I don't consider that I have any ability to predict that. Uh, I tend to avoid loss-making businesses because I don't find it easy to value them and I have learned through bitter experience not to invest in rollouts in the leisure sector. So things like <laughs> restaurant groups or pub companies and things like that. And that's because um, I've um, had my fingers burnt in the past by 
investing in such things. So that's a kind of a happy thing to not not be in at the minute, I would think. I can imagine. Yeah. Just finally, um, you aim to hold companies for at least five years, but what might be reasons for you to sell out of them before that? Yeah. Um, so uh, the first reason would be if um, the story or the company's strategy changed markedly. Um, it might be something like they suddenly went mad and started making either lots of acquisitions or a you know a really big acquisition, uh, or um, something which they said was a you know an adjunct to their business, but actually I, it looked to me like a big diversification. Uh, I I would probably sell if their returns on equity or free cash flow started to deteriorate without a good reason, I would sell. I would, if I found, um, bearing in mind I've got a focused portfolio, there might eventually, not right now, come a scenario where I found a company that I like better than one in the fund and um, therefore I might swap one in and one out, but that isn't going to happen you know, anytime soon because I'm still building up. But I think it's just also generally, you know, sometimes we all, you know, we all make mistakes and um, you can sit there and look at something and think, oh, dear, you know, I, I didn't appreciate that risk or, you know, I, I didn't foresee this particular event. Um, and, you know, just sometimes you just got to walk away. Thank you, Rosemary. A really interesting insight into the state of UK smaller companies and shape and form your new fund is taking. That brings us to the end of today's show, but see Investors Chronicle or the website at investorschronicle.co.uk for more UK equity income, liable investment trust dividends and UK smaller companies. Thank you for listening. Stay healthy and have a good weekend.